Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello, Mr. Chan, Eric. Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. Uh, I would like to ask you first how you would like to define and introduce yourself for audience for first time listening to you. Well, g- g- hello, Mawa. Thank you very much for having me in your podcast. Um, uh, I'm Jean-Luc Paquet, I'm Director General in the European Commission, uh, where I lead a department which oversees uh, Europe's uh, research policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, most visibly, the European Research Programme, uh, today Horizon 2020, tomorrow Horizon Europe, yeah. but also uh, a policy effort to um, develop a research policy with all 27 um, European Union member states uh, coming together and delivering uh, knowledge and solutions uh, for Europe and uh, sometimes for the world. That's what I do. Yeah, so thank you once again for joining us. So I would like to go back to your childhood because we have a question from the audience about your uh, background. You are originally from France and I'm curious, how was your childhood? Have you ever imagined you been in policy making or maybe science in general? How was your childhood? Do you have any memories about that? Well, well, I had a, I, I certainly had a, a very nice childhood. Indeed, mm-hmm. I grew up uh, in France, in, in Strasbourg. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a binational. My, my mother was German, my father French. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much the product of European history, um, mm-hmm. if you want. And, and this is also where I, I saw um, uh, maybe not a career, but a contribution uh, to European policy um, uh, quite early on. Mm-hmm. Um, because Europe is, is about values, it's about certainly today um, a green growth and, and climate change. But initially, when I was younger, it was very much a peace project, um, mm. and I wanted to be to be part of that. Science played a role, but uh, I must say at the outset quite a marginal one. I'm not trained as a scientist yeah. myself. I studied uh, political science and politics, um, not uh, not hard science. I'm not a scientist, um, but I, of course, um, interacted with science and research policies throughout my career. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah. So maybe if you can tell us about, uh, for the audience, what's actually your role in joining an EU Commission for Research and Innovation? What is the role you're doing? Well, I'm, I'm leading a department of uh, 1,200 people, mm-hmm. uh, together with a number of agencies, uh, which are implementing um, research programs to begin with. We have uh, the European uh, Research Council, which I I might be familiar to your audience, which is uh, providing uh, grants to um, uh, principal investigators um, based in Europe, largely Europeans, but not only. We're also attracting great PIs um, into Europe with this European Mm -hmm. uh, Research Council. So that's a component of the program which which I oversee. We also work on innovation with the newly established uh, European Innovation Council, mm-hmm. uh, which is trying to um, to support um, uh, deep tech uh, innovation and help it scale it up uh, in Europe. Yeah. And part of the job is then also to um, bring together uh, European uh, research efforts in partnerships with industry, uh, sometimes also in partnership with um, uh, research which is taking place um, in mm-hmm. our 
European uh, member states. Uh, the bulk of the research is done, of course, at national level in Europe. Yeah. And what my teams do is to try to provide a platform to bind this uh, national effort together with then um, programs and funding um, directly carried out at uh, a union level. And this has very many components. So science, mobility of researchers, mm -hmm. European infrastructures, but also increasingly an effort to um, to ensure that the, 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 the results of the science and the research then feeds into um, mm -hmm. policy making, uh, feeds and, and, and supports the transformation of our societies, uh, helps also our industries and economic actors uh, to change as well into a green and digital Europe. And the argument is that um, research produces a lot of the needed knowledge. Yeah. Uh, research, of course, in technology produces technologies um, and the digital technologies are, are going to be absolutely uh, critical and central. And uh, research is also an interesting place where you can experiment. Mm -hmm. Of course, we experiment a lot as we produce science, but we also can experiment uh, in society with these new uh, tools, uh, digital tools, AI, quantum, uh, but also then more traditional engineering related um, uh, technologies uh, all need to be taken up by society. So research policy is also there mm -hmm. to create space to uh, prepare their, their rollout. So that's what we, we do. And we try to connect it then, as said, to um, the transformations of Europe. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So maybe before going to the COVID situation, and I think because I'm in academia and I hear a lot of stories how COVID situation is affecting the research and funding. So I'm curious to ask you this question first. What does maybe this thing, you th maybe research or direction, you think is very promising with your team? And maybe the EU community seems still disagree or doesn't get much attention. Do you have any thoughts in your mind about that? I can give you. I can give you. I think uh, one example where where I hope that we can do much more in Europe, uh, which is on on gene editing, mm -hmm. and particularly on on plant gene editing. Uh, I mean, European science. Uh, uh, so, Madame Charpentier was just. Uh, uh, recognized on CRISPR-Cas with a Nobel Prize. I mean, shared, mm -hmm. of course, with an American um, co-discoverer. Co co yeah. um, but uh, this is a technology which I think has uh, amazing potential, uh, including uh, as we will need to, to see um, uh, our, our agriculture, our food systems, and beyond um, adapt to climate change. I mean, mitigation, of course, needs to remain a, a central uh, element of the response to climate change. We are still committed to the Paris Agreement and very much hope that yeah. across the globe, I mean, including with recent developments now in the US, yeah. uh, there will be uh, uh, enough uh, measures taken across society and industry to mitigate climate uh, uh, changes and increasing temperatures. But it's obvious that at the same time, we need to start to equip ourselves to be to adapt to these changes. And of course, uh, plant gene editing has many has many promises here. Mm -hmm. But here, I don't think that the issue is so much uh, reluctance uh, in the science community. Quite the contrary, there's uh, there are many labs across the world and in Europe which are investing heavily um, in finding smart applications for that technology. I think in Europe, the challenge is much more acceptance by society, mm -hmm. by by people, by citizens. 
there is uh, certainly a discussion to be had on uh, on, on on the risks and the benefits um, of such technologies, yeah. which are sometimes equated to gene um, to genome uh, modifications (OGMs), which is a very difficult debate uh, in Europe. And I would argue that what we need to do more, what we haven't done enough. Mm. is to associate uh, citizens with the uh, the science agenda setting the science, science agenda with citizens not just doing outreach mm-hmm. not just explaining as uh, scientists researchers or research policy makings not just explaining how the science is done how risks are taken into account how the precautionary principle of course is a framework under which we operate mm-hmm. and what benefits we, we 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 propose i think what we need is that the choices which are made at the outset in labs or in industry are informed by a, a, a process where citizens set the agenda and help us on the choices. If you take mm-hmm. plant gene editing, I think it is a very different discussion if um, the plant is, 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 is modified uh, to use certain types of uh, pesticides or certain types of fertilizers. I mean, mm-hmm. that can be relevant, obviously, for an industry and scientifically. It's a totally different discussion with citizens if it is about hydric stress and making a plant much more resistant to that hydric stress and maybe a plant which will need less or or no no pesticides or fertilizers. If if you were able to discuss these characteristics and make these choices also with citizens, these technologies, I think, would have much greater acceptance and, and their rollout would therefore be much more rapid and the solution which they bring, which I believe are, are critical yeah. for climate adaptation, would become available much faster. Yeah. Uh, we have, um, for example, with plant gene editing, uh, a major development. We just had the Nobel Prize with Madame Charpentier on yeah. CRISPR-Cas. This is a technology which has immense potential and one which I think will be particularly uh, critical to deal with climate adaptation. I mean, of course, we continue to, to need to, to focus across the world on climate mitigation. Yeah. We have, as you know, high hopes with, uh, with the US, uh, the new US administration now that this will be uh, even more impactful across the globe. But we need to prepare, of course, as well. Climate change is happening and adaptation is going to be key. And adapting our food systems, our agriculture will require plant gene editing. Yeah. The point is, that this is not uh, particularly uh, or always perceived as positive uh, in society. There's a lot of very difficult discussions which took place in Europe on on GMOs, as you certainly know. Mm -hmm. And plant gene editing being distinct as a technology, nevertheless brings the same concerns uh, with our citizens. So I think the answer to that is not just to reach out and to explain the science, of course, we need to do that. Mm-hmm. It is not just about ensuring, and all this we do as well, that the precautionary principle is fully um, uh, applied when we develop these technologies. All this is, is happening in Europe. I think to change um, the way society perceives these technologies, you need to have citizens being part of the choices which are made uh, mm-hmm. in using these technologies, if you want. It should not be done just by lab- scientists in their labs, or, or industries on their own, you need an agenda setting with citizens. If the characteristics of the plants which are gene edited were discussed with citizens, there would be, I think, a great acceptance. I mean, one thing is to have a plant which needs uh, less uh, fertilizers or no pesticides, which is 
resistant to hydric stress. I think this is a very positive discussion to be had. Another one is to create a plan for certain types of pesticides. It's a completely different discussion. And if citizens were part of that debate, um, and of course this would not happen overnight, that mm -hmm. it changes uh, the perception across an entire society. But if we were really increasingly having citizens in the, in the agenda setting, I think this would really help to deploy um, these technologies in society, and we need that. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful point about uh, how we can connect what we do in science with a citizen, so and even beyond outreaching. And I'm curious to ask you, because that's a problem we have in an uh, academic uh, world, that we sometimes we don't do a great job in uh, connecting what we do or maybe um, saying what we do. And I don't know how you see it from your role that you have to secure funding for this research and you're expecting outcomes. You have this agenda, you have to maybe leveraging science in Europe and also the citizen as well. So how do you see this problem come from? If you say that science sometimes is maybe sometimes not able to communicate uh, in a simple way and avoid the jargons uh, in their way of talking to the general public. So how do you see this problem yeah, yeah, come you... from? No, no, you, I, I mean, this is... Uh indeed a, a major major challenge for for, re, for for scientists and for research more generally mm -hmm. uh, and it is um, uh, indeed a challenge uh, for the reason i just said uh, you, you need a much better understanding and a much closer interaction between citizens and scientists for the citizens to be to agree to to, to use the results uh, from science but then uh, and you implied that um, i think it is also true that if we want um, uh, governments, administrations to prioritize science funding, mm -hmm. you need also to have uh, public support for that. And there is a, a generally benign view of the usefulness of investing in science, uh, largely, not everywhere, but largely. But that is not necessarily always um, a, a real driver to make positive fiscal choices in favor of science. Mm -hmm. So we need, uh, therefore, indeed, uh, to engage much more um, uh, with the broader public. I think the, the pandemic yeah. is, from that point of view, uh, an interesting moment. Uh, and um, I think there were really, for now at least, uh, two, two, two distinct uh, periods. The mm -hmm. first um, phase of the pandemic uh, in, in spring, and I'm speaking here largely of the European experience, I can't completely judge how it was rolled out elsewhere in the world. I think the take on, on science was very positive. I mm -hmm. think citizens were very keen to see science guide uh, public choices. Um, the first lockdown, the early measures, um, also, of course, the investment put into vaccines and mm -hmm. therapies and tests, all this was, I think, viewed largely as extremely positive. And to an extent, uh, in the few years where I had the role now, which I have in the European Commission, I don't think I saw such a positive uh, view of a society at large on the key role science can play um, mm -hmm. in delivering outcomes in society and also driving better public policies. Mm -hmm. Now, the second phase of the pandemic now uh, after the summer with second partial lockdowns was more difficult for science. There were There's a lot of controversy. Uh, not necessarily uh, uh, problematic from the point of view of, of the science method, because uh, uh, science is not an absolute outcome or, or an absolute truth, but these controversies are uh, now overshadowing the positive perception from the outset, and I think the trust which was uh, largely there is again in part eroded. 
and and so he, he, here again, I think what, what is needed from from scientists generally and and those of us which are funding science or, or promoting science policy, is to seek ways to engage uh, uh, European citizens. There's another example which maybe uh, is interesting uh, to and to to briefly note, is that in Europe we want to um, engage um, now on what we call moonshots, inspired very much from the mm -hmm. uh, from the U.S. Um, uh, man on the moon moonshot of the 60s and 70s and and this is not a completely uh, uh, exceptional way of looking at science but it's, it's one which we want to to really promote uh, in in areas related to climate um, and also on cancer so the idea here is to have these horizon europe the new program mm -hmm. these moonshots where we would identify very clear outcomes and in cancer it is reducing the deaths from cancer in europe by three million people by 2030 in climate, we would have uh, one mission where we would aim at having 100 European cities which are climate neutral. So as you can see, very concrete objectives, um, which I think speak to the public, uh, mm. which reflect ongoing um, expectations and debates in society. And these um, uh, objectives, we would then want on the one hand, of course, to focus um, uh, research efforts uh, to, 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 get, to get knowledge but also to identify technologies and, and, and start to demonstrate and roll these out. But then, of, but then also connect this um, research effort with a broader uh, effort to deliver, because it's not uh, mm. a scientific article which uh, cures a cancer patient. Huh? Yeah. You need for that a doctor and a hospital largely, or, mm. or a prevention system, um, as importantly. And so this is a, a discussion on how you connect research with uh, then the broader policy um, uh, setup. Mm -hmm. And again, as we prepare these missions, we are doing this with citizens everywhere in Europe. I mean, yeah. not, of course, on a, on a wide scale. This is just too complicated. But we have had um, uh, several dozens of engagements where we discuss the missions and try to, to, to engage with groups of, of citizens that they help us shape um, the measures to deliver these outcomes. If we get this one right, I think it will also make quite a contribution in showing to Europeans that science is necessary, important, mm -hmm. central for society, in turn, hopefully, then also uh, producing, again, a lot of support for, for science. And again, I come back to that point, huh, for mm -hmm. fiscal choices, budget choices yeah. in favor of science. Yeah, I think there's really excellent points you say. I think that's maybe the main point maybe we have in academia. And I think I want to ask you this question because I think it's it, it's a very important point. You have visited Silicon Valley and you mentioned that how you see the deep tech technologies really deployed. And if you look to academia sometimes, then you mentioned that also that we don't want it just paper. Paper will not cure uh, disease. So we need a real deployment for that. But when we look to in reality, I'm, I'm again, I'm making a disclaimer, I'm not making a sweeping generalization. There are research labs doing a really great work and advancing uh, in science. But the majority of what we have in, um, in seen in the academia that sometimes you, uh, because of the funding, and you have this risk in research. So sometimes you tend to go to traditional ideas or maybe sometimes to secure funding. And that's, uh, that's a competition we have in, in academia and that especially for STEM science that if you go to risky idea or you're trying to do something outside the mainstream, it's risky and it ends up you don't get funding for uh, the idea you're trying to do. 
So I'm curious to ask you how you see the funding, how, how you ensure this is deserve funding or this is not deserving the funding. How you figure, I know yep. there's a committee for that, of course, to specialize it, but uh, speaking from experience, sometimes it's tricky, you get rejected and sometimes you get accepted. So how you figure out that, and also we have the crisis in publication. So we have here published or perish uh, culture in academia, and it's it's yeah. affecting the way of science is, is done. So, no, I mean, maybe starting with the publish or perish, um, uh, which um, I, I agree is uh, very detrimental to, to research. I, 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 I don't think that the the um, high impact uh, factor yeah. uh, index, uh, high impact index factor uh, used uh, in many parts of the world to decide on, on funding uh, or, or more generally uh, as a key um, tenet of uh, career development for scientists is uh, sufficient in isolation. Mm. I mean, certainly uh, having uh, a track record of uh, great science demonstrated in your publications is important uh, to, uh, to, to, to demonstrate your, your, your abilities and your impact, and, and, and it needs to be part of an evaluation system. I said again, both for funding, but also for career development. But we would argue, and there's a lot of discussion in the academic world, which uh, we are following and uh, also supporting, which aims at uh, developing a broader set of indicators um, to, 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 to come to choices on, on funding um, and on career development. And so the reform of the assessment systems, uh, linked also, of course, to the open science agenda, which we are very strongly supporting in the European Commission, is a, a development which I think is going to be very positive uh, for the quality of, uh, of the academic output. Uh, but also the, the, the quality um, of uh, research careers, because uh, I, I think the, the pandemic has also shown uh, to many scientists, younger ones in particular, but not only, uh, that careers are something which is uh, are not necessarily very solid. And we, I think, are, are losing many science uh, scientists which are leaving science uh, yeah. during this pandemic. And that's something which yeah. we are very concerned with, not to mention uh, the impact, uh, the disproportionate impact uh, the, these more fragile uh, pandemic-related conditions are having uh, on, uh, on, on women in science, which are most affected, more affected than men. But that's mm -hmm. maybe another discussion we, we can come back to. Now, on the choices of what type of research we support and how we then select specific projects, uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, like in any national research and innovation system, uh, an issue of, uh, of balance and diversity. In the Commission, we are we very much uh, understand and uh, and believe that we need to support um, fundamental science, and that uh, needs to be uh, probably both institutional funding, mm -hmm. uh, as it as, as it needs to be project funding. When it is project funding, I think we need to leave a lot of space to ideas coming from investigators themselves. I mean, this is very much what the European Research Council does. And the European contribution is then probably also very much on mobility of researchers. I think it is uh, 
uh, to, to develop your competences um, and to have the angles needed to work uh, in your discipline and across disciplines, I think mobility is a, is a must. I mean, not just in science, huh, but mm -hmm. certainly in science. And this is also where the Marie Skłodowska Curie Fellowship Scheme uh, comes in. And we will, uh, both for the European Research Council and Marie Curie, uh, certainly uh, put very significant resources in the future programs again. Um, the same goes, by the way, uh, for, re to, to, for, for research infrastructures. Huh? You know that we have uh, amazing infrastructures in Europe uh, across uh, all disciplines. And here again, European programs are, are very much about ensuring that everyone in Europe uh, has, has access to these infrastructures. Of course, the quality of the project which you bring to the infrastructure mm -hmm. matters a lot. And I think what is needed is, again, evaluation systems which look at the project in content, look also probably at the team, uh, and not just at a few uh, uh, publications which took place uh, in the past. A very complex uh, ecosystem, uh, mm. science and, and research, uh, academia and research organizations. And uh, the balance between um, generating knowledge and then uh, doing also a, a very purposeful applied research effort uh, again, as I said earlier on, what we want in Europe is to ensure that the results of our research uh, effort, our investment in research, then also feeds the changes in society. So this is much more applied research, equally uh, critical. And so uh, the 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 uh, the need for for policymakers at political level or, or or managers at my level is to ensure that we have a, a good balance mm -hmm. uh, to feed the knowledge. Um, deeply, but then also to push teams into very applied research so that we can uh, make a change in society uh, now and in the coming uh, decade, particularly mm -hmm. around the digital and green transformation. Yeah. So maybe I, I wanted to go back for the point that how COVID situation is affecting in academia. I think you are, that's really right that that point now, I think especially younger one is, is considering leaving academia during this time. I'm curious for you yeah. and your team, what may be something, because this wasn't expected, and maybe I think it could be shifting in many dimensions how Karima looks like after this pandemic situation. Yeah. So if you can tell us what was the challenge for you and team, and why do you think the scientists, especially younger one, is leaving? Is it because of, because many tell me now that the payment sometimes is not really good enough to survive in situation and like that? So I don't know what could be the lessons or maybe what you expect. What, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, of course, uh, our our entire society and, and, and way of working is changing uh, beyond academia and science. Huh? This is yeah. the case absolutely everywhere. And I think we will need, a, at some point, as we now uh, hopefully will be emerging from the pandemic in the coming, uh, yeah. in the coming months, um, we will need to take stock of these very, very deep um, uh, change, uh, I mean, particularly, of course, uh, uh, working from home um, and, and this capacity uh, which multiplies opportunities also of the digital environment in which we are now increasingly used to operate. And, and I, I must say, I remain absolutely uh, flabbergasted to see how um, agile uh, most um, uh, academics, uh, most research organizations, but also public administrations like the European Commission were in adapting, I mean, quasi overnight mm -hmm. uh, to this new setup. But then also what was um, 
what is very visible uh, is that uh, for uh, work uh, in labs, uh, in particular the first lockdown has been uh, has had major major consequences on the development of specific research projects. Mm -hmm. And this has uh, shown, uh, in many cases, this has shown the, the, the limited flexibility which exists um, of uh, project funding. Mm -hmm. uh, the timelines are often quite uh, complex. Uh, the budget availability is usually very, very, very limited as well. Mm -hmm. There's not much flexibility to adjust. And what we, what we have seen during that first lockdown in particular, a little less in the second one because there was much more planning and anticipation possible mm. at individual level and at team level, is that we had major delays in projects. So uh, in, in the commission, we were, of course, extremely uh, uh, open to extend the lifetime, the, 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 the contractual lifetime of all these projects to ensure that they could continue. Mm -hmm. But what was much more difficult uh, for us, but also at national level, was to extend the budget and this has had uh, in some cases also impact on individual researchers so we are we are still looking at how this can be mitigated to an extent but it has had impact so i mean the european program is is, is one 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 uh, dimension only of the of the public funding of research there's a lot of private funding of research as well which was put into question by the shifting timelines and the shifting priorities uh, induced by the pandemic and what mother i can observe mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm a very, unfortunately, I'm not surprised, uh, is that uh, those hardest hit uh, were largely young researchers uh, and often also uh, uh, women. Um, and so we have been very proud in Europe for good reasons of the progress made on, on gender balance in our research uh, communities. And there's a lot to say there if you if you want and if you're interested in a moment to follow up. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I think the pandemic shows is that this is really fragile. So we re must really pay more attention even than I think was the case so far in ensuring diversity um, and gender balance, uh, because when uh, the situation becomes difficult, uh, researchers uh, are, are then uh, disproportionately uh, affected. So that's really an important point to bear mm -hmm. in mind. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to ask you this really excellent point. Do you think maybe you can imagine with your team what could be solution? Because I, we really appreciate what you're doing, but sometimes when we look to not all institutions, sometimes especially for women or minorities, and as yeah. you say, I, I also junior scientists, sometimes then in research, there's hierarchy and it's sometimes it's challenging Absolutely. to speak up and and of course there's techniques i don't want to go for more details but i don't know if in eu uh, or like commission do you envision how you can have direct contact with maybe junior researcher women or minorities they they yep. don't have this flexibility uh, to speak up for ideas or maybe any kind of sort of science practices sometimes it's avoiding the progress of science it happens, but I'm curious about your thought about that. Do you envision something yeah. solution for that? Yeah, I mean, of, of course, the 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 real uh, action needs to take place at institutional level huh? in mm. in universities yeah. in research organizations. But we have a role to play, absolutely. Uh, and there there are a number of strands which are now ongoing, uh, which have uh, where we are really uh, very very pushy, if I can put it in these terms. The first mm. one is that we uh, will expect from any research organization uh, seeking uh, EU funding uh, 
uh, as we move into the new program. Huh? So as of 21, with a bit of a transition into 22, we will expect anyone uh, asking for funding to have uh, a gender equality plan covering gender and mm -hmm. diversity, a gender equality plan in place um, in the institution. I mean, these are plans uh, which are very diverse. Uh, it's about uh, the management of the institution. It's about the composition of team. It's about ensuring uh, access to uh, uh, positions in the university, really a, a proactive uh, policy of, uh, of gender and diversity, uh, which exists in many parts of Europe already. Uh, you certainly have, have, been, uh, have been working with institutions with, which have these gender equality plans in place. But uh, even in, 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 in member states uh, which are most uh, attentive to these developments, we are very far from full coverage. So we hope that with this new requirement, if you want money, you need to be credible in terms of gender equality, uh, we can really uh, have a real impact. Secondly, um, and also quite systemic, is indeed uh, our policy on open access, uh, and in particular on publications. Uh, we are um, moving away in Horizon Europe, our next program, from supporting uh, uh, non-open access publications, including hybrid journals. Mm -hmm. uh, and we want to ensure that uh, researchers can more and more uh, publish their results um, and make these results available from the outset. With that uh, is a strong push on moving away from only uh, publish or perish. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we will also support um, an ongoing discussion across Europe on the career, on the assessment of scientists and, uh, and, and their careers, where I hope we will see a much uh, a more visible component on how, as a scientist, do you operate in a team? If you are a PI, how do you compose and manage your team? Mm. Uh, how, of course, do you then also, as a, as a scientist, um, relate to society at local level? Uh, entrepreneurship, of course, is an important dimension as well, yeah. so that we really open up the traditional tra traditional view mm. of the, the quality and impact of a researcher on a much broader basis. Uh, I'm sure that this will help as well. And then we have some much more specific uh, uh, measures. We, we, we want uh, to have at least half of our evaluators, uh, the expert which uh, help us make choices on which project we fund, we will ensure that we have at least 50% uh, women. Uh, and we will also um, increasingly uh, ensure that all our research, whatever it is, um, uh, pays particular attention to the gender and diversity dimension. Huh? And if you look at AI uh, mm. and, and digital applications, if you look at transport, if you look at health, very often the research uh, looks um, or, or, or is driven by male-dominated, uh, maybe scientists, but also male-dominated uh, assumptions, male-dominated data. Uh, and that, I think, is also a very important dimension on which we will um, increasingly continue to push. This is not new. Huh? We've been doing it uh, purposefully for, for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. But as I said, again, the, the, the pandemic shows that nothing can be uh, taken for granted and that more more or and continued attention will be needed. That's wonderful. Um, I'm curious to ask you when you expect this policy could be deployed in an institution. If there's a time plan for that. Well, as I said, for, for the first measure, mm -hmm. uh, it's now. Huh? Uh, so the new program starts uh, uh, 
if we have a, a, an agreement on the uh, an overall agreement on the European Union budget, uh, which of course is the basis for the program, which is expected uh, now in the coming. Uh, coming days, uh, fingers crossed, then Horizon Europe as a program starts uh, at the beginning of 21. Mm -hmm. And we will expect that at the latest for submissions in 22, uh, institutions and universities which want funding from Horizon Europe, and it's tens of thousands in it, of institutions which in Europe come every year. So we mm -hmm. cover a very, very broad range of uh, European research organizations. They will need to have this gender equality plan in yeah. place. Yeah. Uh, on, on open access and open access publication, same thing. From the outset of the program, uh, we will uh, uh, require um, that uh, the, the publications which result from our funding, mm -hmm. they are either they are in open access publications, uh, but if uh, the scientist chooses to go to a, a non-open access publication, then uh, that he uh, makes the the publication also available on a public, uh, publicly and openly accessible repository. So, mm -hmm. in all cases, the results from the research need to be open access. Yeah. On assessment of careers, this is a. a, a uh, a, a process which is both uh, at, the, at the level of the, of the European Commission, we are trying to provide a platform for that discussion, but this is also largely the responsibility of individual institutions and member states. So the timelines for, for, for changing deeply the assessment or the metrics of assessment, this I think depends country by country. Uh, yeah, very yeah. good progress in the Netherlands, for example. Uh, very good discussions also in 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 uh, in Scandinavia, in uh, in Denmark or Norway, uh, and uh, the discussion is starting in other parts of Europe. But this one will probably be a, a little bit more staggered. But I hope to see progress over mm -hmm. the next five years here, also everywhere. Yeah, great. Maybe if you were a quick argument, someone could tell you because, for example, open access. You say there's other option, and I hope we can embrace it. But for open access, for example, a nature magazine, for example, you have to pay yeah. for like 10,000 euro. Of course, it, it, institutions paying that. But do you think, because some people say that it's, it's not really a great idea to pay $2,000 for open access policy in publishing. And do you think yeah. that's something you consider that maybe we have to get rid of this policies of open access? It's all maybe an institution is being that, but do you think this is really a good solution? Or maybe we have to. But well, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is a very recent development which you are noting. Where indeed Nature, which yeah. is not an open access publication, huh? it's a publication uh, uh, by by subscription and, mm -hmm. and access to articles uh, are, are on a, on on a, on, a, on a, you need to pay for those. They mm -hmm. are behind paywalls. Now, indeed, um, there is a lot of pressure to move to open access, and indeed the solution which Nature is now proposing is. Uh, Quite a high fee, a nice, I mean, 9,500 euros as far as I understand, yeah, yes. 10,000 as you said. And if uh, the scientist is ready to, to pay that fee, then uh, Nature will publish it open access. I mean, that's not the policy we are recommending. Uh? Mm -hmm. uh, the open access policy we recommend is to have indeed publications which are fully open access or repositories which are fully uh, yeah. uh, open access. I mean, clearly, uh, article processing charges um, uh, can be uh, can be uh, supported by by Horizon Europe, but not for a publication which is closed and which just ad hoc uh, requests very high fees for that. So I think what we need is to move towards uh, large scale open access. And I think um, here again, the, the COVID crisis. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the the way 
the scientists across the world, uh, but also, frankly, in Europe, yeah. have uh, progressed on COVID-19. I mean, is I think we will, everybody would agree is just amazing uh, mm -hmm. from from the sequencing of the genome in a matter of days, really, largely uh, under Genome Bank, which is a, a European-funded one, uh, by the way, and then the amazing progress on tests slightly less uh, fast on therapeutics but here also uh, some some progress but then on vaccines uh, in mm -hmm. in a matter of of less than a year we now have uh, uh, several vaccines which are which are ready which are being uh, which are being agreed by regulatory authorities mm -hmm. um, uh, in Europe it's expected by the end of the month before the end of the year and that was uh, possible largely because the 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 data not just the articles, huh, but also the data underpinning these research were shared on the widest possible basis. We established uh, in Europe with the um, EMBL, the European Molecular, Molecular Biology Laboratory, which is a, a major outstanding European research infrastructure. Uh, we established a, a, a COVID data platform and we had uh, more than 40,000 individual scientists bringing their data and, and, and finding data on that platform. So the, the open science and, and open access is, I think, going to be very different after the pandemic, which has demonstrated yeah. the, the, in, in the most spectacular way the benefits of, uh, of open science. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So I called you today and I have a few questions. First one, you, you mentioned that your digital decade is taking the shape and you want us to invest a billion in the next generation of supercomputers for helping us in complex matter from health and energy and climate research. If you can tell us about uh, how this uh, initiative will be deployed in institution, because not all institution has supercomputer access uh, uh, yeah, facilities. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, we, we uh, I mean, Europe is uh, is today already uh, investing in supercomputers. Um, and in fact, the, the, the latest European supercomputers are uh, cutting edge, huh? uh, including in, in the worldwide competition. Huh? We sometimes feel in Europe that we are not uh, uh, on par in, in digital developments, and we are indeed uh, sometimes uh, uh, struggling, uh, but we are addressing our, our limitations, and I think supercomputers are indeed one example where you will have seen, and we will uh, ramp it up very significantly as we now move forward with the new program, uh, with indeed uh, hundreds of millions and probably billions of euros of additional investments, we have been able to establish uh, half a dozen of supercomputers in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, which are um, uh, with the greatest capacity worldwide. And they have already now been used, um, again, in the pandemic, COVID-19, we had this project called uh, uh, Escalar for COVID, uh, where we used Europe's supercomputing capacity. This was done in other parts of the world as well, huh? but we mm -hmm. did it also in Europe in a collaborative way, where these supercomputers were used to um, go through uh, tens of thousands of molecules and compounds uh, to try to see which ones could be then relevant for mm -hmm. uh, lab testing um, in, in finding cures for COVID-19 with already a, a few examples of molecules which are moving into labs and possibly into clinical trials. So a very concrete illustration of how this supercomputing capacity uh, is then uh, relevant in, uh, in, in the health sector, in, in, in medical applications, and very relevant for the pandemic. So 
In terms of uh, the institutions, we are now discussing with European Union member states uh, a partnership, so which would allow co-investment of national uh, budgets and the European Union budget to indeed um, continue to invest into these uh, supercomputing capacity on a broader geographical basis, have more of those um, in Europe, and continue also to be at the cutting edge in terms of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of capacity for these computers. So yes, we will... Uh, uh, no doubt uh, be a, a visible and credible player. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, I think, is a good illustration and, may, and maybe a, a way also uh, to, to finish our, our podcast now, uh, is that uh, Europe um, is, uh, of course, cutting edge in science. Huh? The, the best mm -hmm. science in the world is taking place also in Europe obviously not only in Europe, there's yeah. a bit of relatively good science taking place elsewhere like the US and of course very much now China, but amazing science is, is, is being um, uh, deployed in Europe thanks to uh, our scientists, yeah. uh, thanks to great universities and research organizations and also a, a very close connection with um, uh, top of the range um, uh, infrastructures. Yeah. Now, uh, what is often the case is that this is distributed um, in 27 different national systems. And I think um, what, what, what research policy is all about is on the one hand, uh, ensuring that this diversity is an asset and yeah. obviously in science, uh, diversity is a, a deep asset. Uh, conformity is really the enemy. You need to look at, um, at hard problems uh, from different angles, different disciplines, different cultures. And that diversity allows that to a very, very large extent. So it's an amazing asset for us. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, in a number of areas, uh, we also need critical mass. And critical mass is not available uh, even in the biggest EU member states like uh, Germany um, or France, for example. And I think this is now increasingly understood uh, by our, our EU member states. And so they are very keen to cooperate, um, uh, align their programs, uh, create networks. I mean, in AI, there are now several uh, very broad networks of institutions which are emerging uh, in Europe over the last two or three years, which I think uh, is a big, big promise on, on European uh, AI. And then in some cases uh, where this adds further value, this then comes together with also the European programs and partnerships like the one on supercomputing, AI uh, or microelectronics. That's, that's yeah. if you want the, the, the European way to, to nurture our diversity, but then also come together, generate critical mass to have the necessary impact. And I hope we're, uh, we will see um, in our digital transformation, in our green transformation, our fight for biodiversity and against uh, climate change, mm -hmm. and obviously in health, uh, uh, the pandemic now, uh, we will see the results of that European research effort. That's wonderful. Maybe I'm curious to ask you in this regard, what inclusion uh, is mean to you? Because, for example, you mentioned diversity, and we have sometimes this argument that we are diverse, but we are not inclusive yet, in, maybe in the representation or maybe also in an intellectual way. For people, sometimes they say that I have new ideas I have for, yeah. and still I can't, maybe we are not intellectually inclusive, and that's why it makes that we focus on a certain uh, dogma or certain ideas. So how, how you can see uh, this question and answer it to him? Yeah, 
I think this is um, this is certainly a point that uh, diversity, the diversity, I, I illustrated it at the meta level with the yeah. diversity of national systems. I think the same goes uh, in a given lab, huh? uh, yeah. social, cultural, um, uh, ethnic, uh, gender diversities. Uh, can only enrich a team. There's absolutely uh, no doubt, and, and I think there is loads of, uh, of empirical evidence to demonstrate uh, that such teams are, are, are faster, agile, and often more impactful because they are available, they are able rather, sorry, mm -hmm. they are able uh, to connect to uh, different uh, realities, um, different sources of knowledge. And uh, when the team is well managed, um, they can then really, really blend those and 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 come with breakthroughs. So that's uh, uh, obviously the way forward. Um, and uh, I, I, I wouldn't uh, be able to say that this is uh, yet the case across all systems. Uh, that's certainly something on which uh, uh, we would expect that institutions devote more attention. And again, the gender and diversity plans, uh, which I, I, which we are promoting, I think can be one instrument, uh, probably mm -hmm. not the only one, but hopefully can be one framework or one instrument yeah. uh, to promote these more diverse teams. So that's certainly the direction to go. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's uh, the ending. So we have uh, three questions. Do you think ego is important? doing the EU is important? Ego. I think I do. And I hope that throughout the podcast, I gave you a, a, few, a few illustrations uh, yeah. that the EU, um, the EU matters. Uh, I think the EU matters because... No, no I'm uh, asking, do you think ego is important? The ego. Uh, ego. Not, yeah. Ego. Does yeah. e ah, sorry. sorry no. Do I think that ego matters? Yeah, do, ego. Do I, you ask in, in my position for, for yeah, myself position, or, or yeah, generally? Yeah, for your position, yeah. I mean, ego, ego certainly matters uh, because ego is about um, energy. Um, ego is about uh, engagement. Um, uh, ego is also about being ready to uh, find ideas and, and take risks. So yes, ego certainly matters. Mm -hmm. But ego in isolation is, uh, is dramatic. Huh? Yeah. Uh, none of us is smart enough uh, to go it alone. Huh? Um, and uh, there are so many examples of uh, individuals thinking that they can do it, mm -hmm. and, and this is not, not possible. And particularly yeah. in the complexity of today's world, uh, uh, one individual is not going to make a, a difference anymore. Yeah. Uh, whatever we, we, we see in terms of, um, of amazing individuals and amazing leaders, yes, they can certainly make a difference, but they make a difference not as individuals, yeah. but they make a difference as leaders which bring individuals together. You need collective intelligence yeah. to move uh, in the complexity of today's world. And that's, uh, I think, what uh, needs to be the priority. Wonderful. And is there any book inspired you and you would like to recommend reading? Any book ah, inspired you? There's, there, yeah, well, there's, there probably is one book which, I, which, uh, which has inspired me quite a bit over the last uh, period, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, um, economic, in economics. Uh, it's called The Donut Economy by Kate Rayworth. Uh, a British economist, which is uh, trying to, to, to impact the way um, economic theory is understood, is taught, uh, and is used in public policies. And the concept is very simple. Huh? The concept of the donut economy is that you need uh, uh, economic uh, policy to drive not uh, only growth uh, as a purpose in itself, 
but you need um, uh, an economic policy and, and generally public policies which on the one hand allow a society to thrive mm -hmm. so that's about education that's about social outcomes yeah. diversity and equality as we've discussed uh, now mm -hmm. so and, and that requires obviously uh, resources very significant resources and that's if you want the inner part of the donut so you want to 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 really develop your society and thrive in that donut but then you also need to respect the boundaries of our planet mm -hmm. uh, co2 water, pollution, there are a number of physical boundaries for, for, for this planet, which also need to be respected. And uh, the discussion sometimes is, we cannot have both, we cannot move uh, societies out of poverty and respect our planetary boundaries. And I think the donut economy demonstrates, mm -hmm. and I mean, argues, and tries to demonstrate and certainly brings a number of instruments uh, which could be deployed to ensure that on the one hand, we, we, we do respect our planetary boundaries. And this is, uh, I mean, so important uh, uh, on climate and biodiversity and still so largely underestimated um, uh, in, many, in, in many discussions. Yeah. But at the same time, we need absolutely to, to, to continue to deal with poverty and develop our societies. And, 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 and I can only recommend the donut economy. It's also a pretty straightforward and, yeah. and, and um, easy read. So sounds that's, very interesting. that's a book um, yeah, I would uh, recommend. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. I, I would definitely I would read it, yeah. So maybe what are the most important qualities you have gained while being at EU Commission? Something you have to maintain a quality is very important for you. Yeah, the quality, uh, I think what I have learned, uh, I've been now uh, 26 or 27 years already uh, yeah. working, uh, I mean, not in science only, uh, but in, in European policies generally. Mm -hmm. And I think what I retain from that is what I said earlier on uh, this notion of collective intelligence. I've met mm -hmm. uh, uh, amazing people, uh, amazingly different, which uh, which have all uh, their their intellectual and, and, and political background and baggage. And uh, we are an institution which is trying to bring it together for, 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 for the good of our societies. And, and um, so this um, collective intelligence is what yeah. really, I think, carries me every day and which uh, is what I really have uh, learned and I take with me from these many years. Yeah, that's wonderful. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was the life changing? Yeah, uh, well, this is a much more mundane one. Uh, I think it is uh, the need to follow up. Uh, we, I mean, I, I, I've been a, a manager now, uh, so trying to to manage or or, or or maybe today even lead the teams. And I think the, 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 what I, I learned early on, and it's not easy to implement, is, is follow up on decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we really uh, spent a, a lot of uh, time to, to get to, to good decisions, collective decisions, smart decisions, impactful decisions. And they can be very small huh, or very big, huh, very specific or very strategic. Yeah. That doesn't matter. The challenge is to follow through on them. Uh, and and, and yeah. that I learned early on, and I'm trying to do that. Yeah. So thanks so much, Mr. Generic, for your time. It was a thoughtful and enjoyable thank discussion. You. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Goodbye. Okay, bye.